This week, Riverbed Technology and Chilean Hydroelectric Dam Project Alto Maipo filed for Chapter 11 Delaware, healthcare provider trade groups challenge implementation of No Surprise Act, and Mitel Networks agrees to prepay $200 million of $1.1 billion term loan. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high-yield distressed debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Julian Bolan will be joining me for the Week in Review. For this week's Deep Dive, we have a replay of a recent installment in our webinar series in which Reorg and a panel of experts discuss recent trends in middle market dip structures and financing terms as well as expectations for future developments. It's Friday, November 19th. On Tuesday, Riverbed Technology, Inc., a San Francisco-based provider of IT optimization products and services, filed for Chapter 11 protection in the District of Delaware. The debtor's proposed restructuring plan would eliminate approximately $1.1 billion of Riverbed's existing funded debt, provide Riverbed $100 million of new equity capital, and pay all trade, vendor, and employee obligations in full. First lien lenders would receive a combination of new preferred stock and a $900 million exit facility, and second lien lenders would receive 100% of reorganized equity subject to dilution. An ad hoc group of lenders holding a supermajority of its funded secured debt would be providing the $100 million of new money in exchange for convertible preferred equity. Once the restructuring transactions are complete, the ad hoc group, which is made up entirely of institutional investors, including Apollo, would become the majority owners of Riverbed through their managed funds. The plan is based on a restructuring support agreement entered into on October 13th with the company's equity sponsors and the ad hoc group. The RSA is supported by holders of 100% of the bridge notes, approximately 67% of first lien loan claims, 84% of second lien loan claims, and 77% of holders of equity interest in the debtor's parent. On October 22nd, the debtors launched a dual solicitation process, simultaneously soliciting consent to an out-of-court exchange and the bankruptcy plan. Both transactions were supported by the RSA parties, but the debtors elected to pursue a Chapter 11 process to obtain tax efficiencies, to resolve potential legacy equity holder issues, and to obtain other benefits available under the bankruptcy code. Riverbed says it faced significant headwinds in 2020 related to the COVID-19 pandemic, including global supply chain disruptions and labor shortages. These factors, combined with substantial debt service obligations, constrained Riverbed's liquidity. Compounding these challenges, one of Riverbed's key markets, the wide area network optimization market, has undergone a general decline in recent years as part of the transition by organizations to alternative location independent computing technologies. On Wednesday, unfinished Chilean hydroelectric dam project Altamaipo filed for Chapter 11 in the District of Delaware, with approximately $2.8 billion of liabilities. The company attributes the bankruptcy filing to a liquidity crisis and a combination of supply and demand factors in the Chilean energy market. The debtors say construction of the project is 99% finished and that they are seeking to finish construction and achieve a commercial operation date in March 2022. The company enters Chapter 11 with a restructuring support agreement with four secured lenders, secured claim holder and construction contractor Strabag, and Altamipo's parent, AES Andes, which is committed to provide a $50 million dip revolver. The RSA parties collectively hold 55% of the debtor's outstanding senior secured pre-petition debt, and Strabag, by virtue of secured supplier financing, holds about 19%. According to the debtor's first-day papers, Discussions with several other secured creditors are ongoing, and the debtors expect that additional creditors will join the RSA in the coming weeks. According to filings, the post-effective date capital structure would consist of a super-priority exit facility to pay off any outstanding amounts under the $50 million dip revolver, about $1 billion of first lien debt in the form of senior loans and notes, about $995 million in second lien secured loans, and intercompany payments to be paid in the form of a shared services loan. The second lien loan and shared services loan would be convertible into equity beginning in 2042. The obligations of the pre-petition senior secured term lenders, secured swap counterparties, and of Strabag under its construction agreement would be satisfied by the new first and second lien debt. General and secured claims would not receive any distributions, and existing equity would be canceled, provided that AES Andes would receive 100% of reorganized equity, subject to dilution by future conversion of the second lien debt and shared services loan. Judge Karen Owens on Thursday granted the debtors requested first-day relief, including consensual use of their senior lender's cash collateral. An interim dip hearing is scheduled for Monday, November 22nd at 1.30 p.m. Eastern, and the second-day hearing is scheduled for December 20th at 10 a.m. Eastern. 
Two trade groups representing healthcare providers have filed lawsuits against the Department of Health and Human Services, Department of the Treasury, and Department of Labor and their respective heads, challenging the interim final rule Part 1 and Part 2 released in connection with the No Surprises Act. The No Surprises Act prohibits patients from receiving surprise medical bills when seeking emergency services or certain services from out-of-network providers at in-network facilities. The litigants seek to vacate provisions in the rules stipulating that median in-network rates or the qualifying payment amount under the rules should be presumptive appropriate out-of-network amount owed. According to the lawsuits, Congress intended that arbitrators considering billing disputes should also consider factors such as quality of outcomes, market share of parties, and patient acuity when determining the appropriate out-of-network rate. On Tuesday, November 16th, the Association of Air Medical Services, or AAMS, a trade association representing over 93% of air ambulance providers in the U.S., filed an action for declaratory and injunctive relief in the D.C. District Court, asserting that the interim final rules are inconsistent with the statute's text and purpose and imposed through administrative fiat policies that Congress expressly considered and rejected. According to AAMS, the interim final rules undermine the No Surprises Act's independent arbitration provisions by deeming the qualifying payment amount, or QPA, determined by plans and insurers to be presumptively dispositive in any out-of-network payment dispute and requiring the arbitrator to select the offer that is closest to that amount. To rebut this presumption under interim final rules, AAMS says a provider must offer information that clearly demonstrates that the QPA is materially different from the appropriate out-of-network rate. On October 28th, the Texas Medical Association, or TMA, and Dr. Adam Corley filed a complaint for declaratory and injunctive relief in the District Court for the Eastern District of Texas, asserting that the QPA arbitration presumption provisions of the interim final rules exceed the agency's authority under the No Surprises Act and were unlawfully issued without notice and comment under the Federal Administrative Procedures Act. According to TMA, the reputable QPA presumption will unfairly skew arbitration results in payers' favor, granting them a windfall they were unable to obtain in the legislative process and would undermine providers' ability to obtain adequate reimbursement for their services to the detriment of both providers and the patients they serve. A bipartisan group of more than 150 lawmakers also sent a letter to departments involved asking them to amend the interim final rule to align the law's implementation with the legislation Congress passed. On the other hand, two Democratic lawmakers, as well as a group of more than 60 organizations representing unions and employees, also sent letters applauding the interim rule. An official with the Employee Benefits Security Administration has also defended the rules. Mitel Networks disclosed to lenders during a private call on Monday that it will prepay $200 million of its approximately $1.1 billion first lien term loan as part of a plan to spend $450 million to reduce debt with proceeds from its strategic partnership with Ring Central, according to sources. The Canadian IT services company made the announcement during its third quarter earnings update call. On the heels of Ring Central's announcement on November 9th that it would pay up to $650 million to be Mitel's exclusive UCAS partner and acquire certain intellectual property rights, as well as patents covering network and call management, as well as security and infrastructure. Mitel's first lien lenders received a notice stating that the $200 million prepayment would be made on Wednesday, November 17th, the sources said. Mitel's first lien term loan rose this week to around $0.98, cents, up from the high 80s as of November 8th, according to Solve Advisors. The company's $260 million second lien loan due 2026 also rose into the low 90s this week, up from the mid-70s as of last week. Mitel has yet to announce the timing for making the remaining $250 million in deleveraging payments, but is expected to fund the amount using proceeds from selling Ring Central shares it received in the transaction, the sources said. The company has also not disclosed if all of the proceeds will go toward repaying just the first lien or how it would reduce its debt load beyond repaying the first lien, but it could use some of the funds to repurchase the second liens at a discount, according to sources. Top red stories this week included court opinion review, LTL management heads to New Jersey, reinstatement as make whole fight, plan sales are not 363 sales, real talk on releases in Avidem Health. Litigation coverage, Aldrich Pump ACC says debtor's estimation proposal violates claimant's jury trial rights, would delay Chapter 11 process for years. Carlson Travel files additional briefing ahead of combined first-day DS plan confirmation hearing. U.S. trustee objects to plan breakneck schedule. Judge Sanchi denies Colorado oil and gas lessor's motion to reconsider dismissal of adversary complaint for unpaid royalties. Now here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, good morning on. It's light week this week, as is usual, before the big shopping holiday on Friday. Monday, November 22nd, earnings from Avaya and a confirmation hearing in Puerto Rico. November, November 23rd, a sale hearing in Lime Tree Bay and Puerto Rico confirmation hearing again. Plus a hearing in PG&E and stay relief hearing in Basic Energy. 
Wednesday, November 24th, hearing in basic energy again, another one in LATAM Airlines, and that is all she wrote. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone, and back to New York. For this week's Deep Dive, we have a replay of a recent installment in our webinar series in which Reorg and a panel of experts discuss recent trends in middle market dip structures and financing terms, as well as expectations for future developments. All right, I think we're ready to go. Good morning. I'm David Zubkis, a legal analyst for the America's Middle Market product at Reorg. As you all know, today we're going to be discussing emerging dip financing trends in the middle market space. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to introduce our panelists for today's webinar. Um, from Gibbons PC, we have Dale Barney and Michael Lubin. Uh, Dale is a director in Gibbons Financial Restructuring and Credit Rights Group, where he represents both secured and unsecured creditors and handles a wide variety of general commercial corporate securities litigation. He's worked on uh, a number of notable cases, such as Lyondell, Molly Corp, Westinghouse, Strauss Discount Auto, Hovenstead, more recently, Lime Tree Bay, and Geokinetics. Um, Michael is a director in Gibbons Corporate Group and a member of the Distressed Situations team. In addition to working on debtor financing, he specialized in real estate financing, UC matters, and cross-border transactions, and has worked on notable matters such as the Morallo Company and United Gilsonite Laboratories Chapter 11 cases. He's represented the state of New Jersey as a creditor to Atlantic City for emergency financing and has represented a debtor in consensual work on a foreclosure of the penthouse condo unit in the Billionaires Building in Manhattan for a record $36 million sale. Um, from Berkeley Research Group, we have Christopher Kearns and Rick Wright. Chris is the managing director at BRG and is the co-head of their corporate finance practice and has extensive restructuring experience, having served as the CRO and advisor for various debtors over the years, as well as the financial advisor in numerous creditor rights matters. Chris has also worked on a number of notable matters as a testifying expert, including Lyondell, Momentum, Caesars, Nortel, and more recently, Brazos, Hertz, and Peabody. And Rick is a managing director at BRG and specializes in corporate restructurings, M&A, uh, restructuring-related litigation, and specialized bankruptcy matters. Rick has worked on such noble matters such as Maxis Dean Foods, Brookstone, Betsy Johnson, Speedcast, Morant, and Calpine. Um, I'd also like to add that before we start, if you would like to access this webinar again, a uh, replay with slides will be available on the Reorg Media page later today for Reorg clients. So... Um, now we got formalities out of the way. Let's get started. Um, um, as, as we discussed before, we'll be uh, taking a look at recent trends and dips in the middle market and are going to be hitting a number of issues, like what exactly constitutes the middle market space, what kinds of lenders are operating the space, uh, recent trends and dip terms, and how gucks are making out through all of this. And we'll be answering questions at the end, so please feel free to submit your questions anytime using the Q&A widget located at the bottom of your screen. Um, Dale is going to start us off with a discussion of what actually constitutes the middle market space. So, uh, Dale, uh, you could take it away. Uh, thanks, David, and good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Um, the four of us, uh, along with the REARC folks, talked about uh, exactly what the parameters of what everybody calls the middle market are, and we kind of came to a consensus that it's uh, it, it, debtors with annual revenues in the 100 million to half a billion dollar range. Um, these, uh, the, these, type, these, these size companies uh, range across many industries uh, and they tend to be thinly capitalized or uh, uh, lack sufficient hard asset value as compared to larger companies. Um, the, and our experience is what happens is when they're in chapter 11, the administrative costs of the process, uh, the debtors professionals, the committee's professionals, the lenders professionals uh, really push these companies during the process uh, uh, to the limit. Um, and um, it, it, the costs push many of these types of companies into trying to come to out of court restructurings or sale processes without having to incurring the expenses of chapter 11. Um, Chris, do you, you want to talk uh, about some uh, some recent examples? Sure. And I think just in, in generally, and, and good morning, everybody, and thanks to the REARG research folks for inviting us and including my picture where I look like young Frankenstein with the black and white. Um, Dale hit on a couple of salient points, which this, to me distinguish um, a distressed middle market case from uh, some of the some of the mega cases. 
you know, one is um, by the time a middle market case, particularly with a hard money lender, gets into distress or on the proverbial courthouse steps, the capitalization, the equity cushion in, in loan to value for the secured lender, that those those types of issues, um, generally it is a thinner case than a mega case. One, two, um, the fee burn, the administrative burn uh, in a middle market case is of particular concern. Not that not that fee burn is in a concern in, in a in a mega case, but in particular, middle market cases, particularly in, in our current environment where, not surprisingly, um, since probably the end of the first quarter of 2021, uh, we all know that the distressed market bankruptcy filings have slowed um, you know, to, a, to a trickle. When you look at the reorg research first half 2021 review, you'll see that dip financings in terms of volume for April, May, June uh, have slowed significantly. And I'm pretty sure in the high yield market in September, there wasn't a single default. So market is slower, which means the folks who typically will have worked on the mega cases are working on middle market cases now, which puts more fee pressure on some of these, on some of these large cases, uh, on some of these middle market cases, rather in terms of in terms of burn. So consequently, and we'll get more into this, um, you end up where, um, based on the reorg data, roughly two thirds of these cases are MA cases when they file. Uh, when they file, uh, roughly three quarters of those dip lenders are non-conventional, not commercial banks. And the milestones you see are tighter to get to an outcome to avoid or ameliorate the fee burn. Um, but in terms of the middle market itself, um, if we go to the next slide, this is taken from the reorg research material. And I think it's a pretty good representation of um, sort of the cross section of what's been seen in the middle market sector in the first half of 2021. If you look at that middle column, that says 100 million to 500 million uh, by sector. And you see it touches almost every sector, including uh, this year, uh, utilities, not merge power, but utilities. And, and most of that line, I could tell you, we're working on, on the debtor side on the $40 million item, which is Liberty Power, uh, and then the billion dollar case, which is which is Brazos. A lot of those are, are URI related. So you have different market circumstances, uh, different circumstances that caused those distress. It was, you know, um, mother nature, not market conditions. But you can see just in terms of the middle market in general, there's a swath of matters by industry. Uh, we're seeing a lot of middle market now, particularly in upstream energy uh, filings, which are still reacting to things like Henry Hub getting as low as $1.80. I think Henry Hub is, is now closer to $6, but you know that's been a, an ongoing impact. And then we will continue to see healthcare filings, we think, um, which are uh, facts and circumstances based, uh, you know, third party providers over levered uh, the regional hospitals getting into distress. And, you know, Dell could certainly talk to that as well. So um, the, the current trend, obviously, is the market is slow. Um, there are certain pockets, though, energy and healthcare in particular, where we think in the middle market, we're still going to see some, some filings, uh, you know, for the second half of 2022, uh, even while we're still in a relatively robust credit market. Michael, how does our defined 100 to 500 million dollar range uh, for middle market compare to the corporate finance world? It's fairly similar, Dale. I mean, we we work generally with 100 million up to a billion. And um, as Chris said, I just want to reiterate that you know they're they're good sized companies, you know, a 200 300 million dollar company, but they still are sometimes considered small when you get into the bankruptcy world and and having to deal with the professional fees and the costs uh, of dip financing and all of the transactional work that goes into it. Um, you know, as is the case across the legal profession, we tend to see that the larger deals develop these new structures and strategies and set trends, like we'll talk about here today. And then ultimately, those new ideas work their way down to the middle market. 
and and that's where it may be harder to to implement them or, or tougher to swallow, I guess, uh, given the reduced resources that are available. Yeah, one thing we've seen over the past ten years, in particular, I think, is that the Chapter Eleven process is being used as a tool to affect a sale process, um, as opposed to a traditional reorganization with a with a plan confirmation and the same debtor coming out with a new capital structure. Uh, we've seen a lot of cases where, as I said before, the debtors have run a pre-sale process uh, with an investment banker uh, unsuccessfully, and they end up in Chapter 11 because they're just they're at that point, uh, and they hope that the time bought by the Chapter 11 can give them time to come up with a stalking horse and run a 363 sale process. Warren uh, Dale, let me jump in here. And it's a little bigger than middle market, but probably a good example of stuff you may see as well. You may have a circumstance like Briggs and Stratton where uh, there was a process run pre-petition by Houlihan. We had the committee in that case. And it filed with a stalking horse on day one. And that stalking horse was also the dip lender. So um, they're, you're right. And it'd be because of the bankruptcy case uh, cost, there oftentimes is a lot of spade work done uh, pre-filing, but many times in the middle market in particular, you know, the filing is, uh, you know, still looking for a, a, still looking for a buyer. Right. So, you know, because of the tightness of a lot of these cases uh, and, and the milestones uh, that are in place, we'll talk more about later. Um, so, you know, budgeting um, and, you know, pre-bankruptcy planning, you know, particularly important here um, where, you, where you have those type those kind of tight milestones, which, um, you know, have, have continued to tighten up in the last, you know, six, 12 months. The other dynamic in a middle market case, oftentimes in these sale cases, Dale, which you know all too well, is by the time a committee is formed, assuming a committee is formed, um, the, the direction of the case is, is you know, already defined. And, you know, creditors right. are really behind the eight ball. Yeah, and, and with these sale cases, if th there's not a lot of runway. Uh, they don't have six months or a year to come up with a stalking horse. The, the milestones on the dips are tight, as Rick mentioned. Uh, so it's sort of a Hail Mary in a lot of these cases uh, to try to buy a couple of months' time to, to try to find uh, a way to uh, sell the assets. David, I think we could probably move to the next slide. There we go. So... Who are the dip lenders in middle market cases? And I think maybe it's it's would be helpful to contrast to a mega case. And, and two, two examples come to mind. I mentioned that we're the financial advisor to Brazos. And if you look at the reorg research, uh, first half of 2021 analysis, and this showed you how the market has changed in the last year or so, Brazos was the largest dip in the first half of 2021. It was a $700 million dip, which included a dollar for dollar uh, roll up. And we ran that dip process and that was the declarant on that dip. Uh, and then the other case uh, is Hertz uh, that I wanted to talk about. And in both of those cases, there was a ton of interest on uh, from institutions to provide the financing. Uh, Hertz with uh, what happened with the battle in terms of ultimately who would be the plan sponsor, um, that night had led winning bid, if you will, uh, required basically a refinancing of Hertz's entire balance sheet. Uh, a lot of asset-based financing, a lot of hard collateral, and forget the number, seven, eight billion dollars of new money that had to come in. And it was all led by money center banks and by well-capitalized hedge funds like, you know, Apollo, Deutsche and Barclays. Brazos, um, when we ran that process, we had about 40 to 50 uh, overall contacts, uh, primarily primarily money center banks and well-capitalized hedge funds. Uh, I know nine of the money center banks were, were contacted. JP Morgan ultimately was the dip lender there. And I could tell you that for the most part, not completely, but for the most part, our marketing process was fielding calls, not having to make calls to generate interest because there was a lot of interest in that case since there was a lot of asset value and cushion there. Uh, in terms of you know folks looking to participate, you contrast that with the middle market, where um, you have um, a, typically a different type of dip lender. It could be a BDC, it could be a family office, 
There are circumstances we've seen uh, recently where it's a key customer. There's one case Rick might talk about where the fulcrum were, were muni bondholders. Um, and it is not typically the money center banks. It may be a, a bank with an RBL sometimes, and we've seen this in, in a case recently uh, where the secured loan was sold to a hedge fund uh, who then became the dip lender uh, during the case. And there's a good chart in that reorg first half summary, which shows uh, for the 2021 dip facilities by lender type, um, that 70 to 80% of those dips, the lender is either the pre-petition uh, secured creditor for either defensive or offensive reasons or both, or the sponsor, um, you know, again, to protect interests. Uh, and there are a couple of instances, Brick and Stratton, I mentioned where, where the dip lender is also the stalking horse bidder. So that who is the dip lender on these middle market cases is very different than the mega cases. And a lot of what drives this is facts and circumstances based. Look, every, every bankruptcy case, there are facts and circumstances that have to be considered, but it's more uh, accentuated, I think, in a middle market case where specific facts and circumstances really drive who the dip lender is and, uh, and the direction of the case. And if you look at some of these bullets, this is a you know, pretty dense uh, slide, but uh, some of this maybe is self-evident where um, because there isn't a lot of equity cushion or maybe not, not any in, in the asset base, you typically don't see priming dips in, in the middle market. Uh, and you also typically see the pre-petition lenders consequently have uh, you know, considerable leverage over the process um, as a result. Um, and because of that, and we'll get into that on pricing, um, you see some differences between middle market and mega cases on on pricing, on fees, on tenor, and, and those sort of issues. You typically don't see RSAs in the middle market, but I wanted to mention that in terms of, so, so the way I think of it, some, something of an analogy. In a mega case, you'll see rights offerings very often, you know, where the backstop parties will get all kinds of goodies uh, for providing the capital uh, discount uh, on equity pricing, backstop fees, and the like. And, that, and the market, uh, folks look to market comps going back to Peabody and, and even earlier uh, in various jurisdictions on, on what can you get as a backstop party for you know, fees and discounts. I think that's also, that's analogous in the dip market, particularly in the middle market for dip lenders in terms of what's happened in other cases, how does that pricing work and what is a comp that, that I as a dip lender can use to be as aggressive as possible as I price this loan. Uh, talk about um, pricing, for example, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, these middle market um, uh, borrowers have uh, higher higher coupons and costs than um, the larger caps anyway, because uh, there's, uh, as Chris said, a different um, type of uh, different type of lender. When we look at our comps, uh, you know, we, we, a lot of these middle market lenders, firms like, you know, Guggenheim, Apollo Fortress, you know, BDCs and boutique investment banks um, uh, are, are much more common. And, and oftentimes it's, you know, a party that um, had bought the pre-petition debt ahead of the bankruptcy for this, you know, specific purpose of, you know, controlling the bankruptcy is maybe provided as a stocking horse out to a platform company or something or a strategy um, such as that. Um, and, you know, there often are not bonds in many of these cases. So, you know, as was said previously, a lot of times the GOOPs are, um, uh, you know, the trade um, haven't been involved in any um, pre-petition uh, type of discussions, including the possibility that um, a sales process might have uh, might have been run. Um, you know, the, the Muni case uh, that Chris re referred to is a recent case of Carbon Light. That was, a, that was a real complicated one because there were four different silos of assets uh, and one of them had municipal bonds. So uh, the, the municipal bondholders ended up uh, funding a dip just for that um, portion of the of, of the case. Um, so, um, you know, but uh, some of the lenders that you also see, for example, in the TECT aerospace case, um, you know, they were a key supplier to Boeing. Um, so Boeing and, and also um, bought into the uh, pre-petition capital structure um, ahead of the bankruptcy and, you know, funded, um, you know, came uh, with partners funded up a, a dip. Um, so that they could, you know, assure that they weren't going to lose access to some of these specialty product, uh, uh, specialty um, 
uh, um, uh, components that were being uh, that were being uh, manufactured for their planes. So, so we'll see that. Uh, you know, one of the things is this is you know value of assets, right? So, you know, what are what are you know what are, what do Gooks end up with? You know, a lot of times it values how the trade is is being um, you know is being valued by a potential buyer or an IRSA party in, in some of these cases too. Hey Michael, what what uh, how active are these types of lenders in lending in the non-distress world in usual corporate finance transactions? The uh, dip lenders are um, well, it, it depends, right? So they're not uh, hard money lenders, or we see often in, in um, distress situations pre-petition, and and then will uh, become a dip lender. Um, as Chris was mentioning, everything you know is, is fact and circumstance specific. So, in the smaller deals or in the middle market deals that we're involved in, particularly in strategic transactions, we've had transactions with uh, smaller state banks or regional banks, not the big money center banks, but banks who are not as familiar with the dip process, but ultimately became the dip lender uh, because they were educated, and you know we were able to educate them on the benefits of dip lending and the benefits that it would have for them uh, in the deal and, and the fees and expenses they could get. So it, 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 does, uh, it does vary quite a bit. And Michael, I, the, the M&A market right now is, is, is kind of white hot, including, I think, in middle market, at least based on some of the transaction related stuff that, that we're doing. Uh, what are you seeing there in terms of the lenders, you know, the folks providing that that financing as against some of these dip lenders in, in these middle market cases. Any similarities? Uh, they're more funds, you know, they're private equity funds or hedge funds who are financing those transactions. It's it's not so much, uh, you know, the, the larger banks that maybe you used to see or syndications, but it, it's all, a lot of this is just being driven by private equity and the money that's been, I think, sitting on the sidelines for a while and looking for a home. So the market is incredibly hot right now. Yeah, there was an article in the Times this morning about how private equity funds are picking up uh, sort of the dirty assets that uh, the big oil companies are shedding uh, due to you know green energy uh, evolution. So they're all over the place. Yeah, alternative lenders. Yeah, right. The, the one thing we've talked a lot about in, in putting this together is how uh, the dips are rolling up pre-petition, uh, the pre-petition facilities uh, in, in fairly high ratios. And that, the, that one slide that Rick was talking about, where there was one uh, dip that rolled up uh, uh, 34 to one. It was a million two or so in new money uh, and, uh, with, uh, and 41 million that was rolled up. So that's uh, that's a real trend, and it's a uh, it's a it's a condition that the lenders are insisting upon, uh, and the judges are going along with it. On that, you know, this again goes back to you know, at least my thinking on how facts and circumstances are more pervasive in terms of how they impact the rollover. Rick, you might want to talk about that case in particular because that that's sort of that's clearly an outlier as against um, what you'd certainly see in a in a larger case. Right. So, you know, um, when we looked at our comps for middle market, um, you know, we found one that had that 34 to one ratio. And that's a case called um, Little River Healthcare Holdings filed in um, West uh, Western District of Texas. Um, it's a, a small case. They didn't need a lot of liquidity. It was a litigious case. They were in some litigation with their uh, with the third party payers. Um, so they're a healthcare entity, um, and uh, you know the uh, the um, pre-petition lender, you know, uh, wasn't willing to fund the company, um, you know, without being put into a bankruptcy, and, and that would you know force a settlement um, in the in the litigation. And then I believe it was an exit um, through through a stocking. So um, this is a company that didn't necessarily need. Um, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of equity, a lot of uh, liquidity. They asked for up to eleven. Only a couple million got um, got funded, and um, but there was forty million dollars in you know pre-petition debt that got rolled up. So that's why you see the big um, the big ratio. So a lot of these are companies that you know filed you know maybe even uh, uh, closer to a to a two-party dispute. Um, you know, a specific reason, uh, particularly litigation, um, where there really wasn't any other interest. Um, from from lenders 
um, to to uh, to be able to um, you know um, t- uh, prime the uh, the secured lender or willingness. Um, so you know they were able to roll up that debt, and um, the um, judge uh, you know went ahead and um, and approved uh, and approved the roll up as it was the best um, uh, pricing alternative the company had. So, so on roll-ups, a couple more things uh, I think I'd add. If you look at the, again, the reorg research study for the first half of 2021, the number of cases that have roll-ups um, now versus pre-COVID, it, it, it's not terribly different. Um, but um, again, when you look at the roll-ups and you look at the ratio, one for one, two for one, 34 for one, uh, when you get to these uh, ratios that look like outliers, is the example we just gave, uh, you really need to get, <clears throat> as, as an advisor, you really need to get to the next layer of facts and circumstances on what gave rise to that roll-up. Uh, you know, because I think we, we've started out in roll-ups in general, Dale, seeing maybe one-for-one one on new money, and, and then it's changed to one-for-one. One. Uh, there's a case now, Rockdale Marcellus, that just filed where the roll-up is two-for-one. Um, and uh, it's it's a bit... It's a bit all over the place. Uh, there are times where I think a dip lender will look at uh, what's been done in other jurisdictions in terms of roll-ups, in terms of what, what's custom, what's, quote, market. Um, and that's all fine and good. But uh, again, you need to get the facts and circumstances. There is an overarching issue, though, and Rick just touched on it, um, that you see quite often in these kinds of cases, um, which is... Um, and I think uh, you may want to talk about this with, with Lime Tree and Judge Isker, you know, Dale, where, where you have a court who looks at some of these um, dip terms, um, including roll-ups and pricing, and while not being happy, if you will, with those preferred terms, you know, there are oftentimes the bench will look at it and feel that there's, since there's no other alternative, um, they have no choice but to uh, but to approve, maybe there's some pruning on, on terms, but you know, you'll still end up with, with that dip being approved. So yeah, what th- thoughts Dale, there, Dale? Yeah, I think, you know, Lime Tree is an interesting case because it's the oil refinery on St. Croix that was run by Hovensa for many years. That was a joint venture between um, the Venezuelan National Oil Company and Hess Oil. It was one of Leon Hess's pet projects back in the 60s and the 70s. Um, and Hovensa was itself, sorry? I'm sorry, so were the Jets, one of his pet projects back then, but we don't <laughs> Well, similar results, right? Um, the, um, and the, uh, there were all sorts of issues with, with deferred maintenance with the plant and the fact that it's in, on a small island in the Caribbean makes maintenance difficult and expensive. Um, but anyway, it was sold out of the Hovensa Chapter 11 to a private equity group that's been running it and put four, $4 billion into it over the past four years or so. Um, and they tried to bring it online in the spring uh, and they started up and it ran for a couple of months. And then they had, they've had a series of environmental problems at the site. Uh, uh, my client did, was doing the wastewater treatment there. Um, and uh they they started the plan up and they had another environmental foul. Uh, they had a it was an oil release that sprayed oil over uh, my client's facility as well as a, na- a neighboring residential area. There are a bunch of class action lawsuits that have been filed, so they shut it down. And now they are uh, they are uh, Baker Hostetler represents the debtor, uh, and they filed a case. They've got a a, 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 a sale procedures order in place, but uh, they to date they don't have a stalking horse, uh, and it's difficult to you know it's a difficult case to find a buyer for because for you know for a lot of external reasons certainly one being what I just mentioned is that you know the oil the oil business uh, the oil refining business is is being downsized somewhat modified uh, and it's uh, it's just a, an expensive facility to run, but the judge you know the judges and the judge in that case. I think he would look askance at some of the terms, but you know, saw that it's a it's a sort of a no-win situation because you can't shut this oil refinery down. It's a, a big supplier to the region, um, and it employs a it's it's next to the government. It's the biggest 
uh, employer on St. Croix, I, I, I think I've heard. Um, so, the, you know, the judge kind of, I, I think, held his nose, won some of the dip terms and, and approved it because, it, it, as the judges tend to say in these cases, we need a dip to keep this case going. And this is this is what the market's producing. And yeah, Dale, it, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Just, yeah. We're already on pricing, talking about all that. It probably would be helpful if we just moved on to the next slide. Yeah, that's fine. We we're kind of talking continue. about those topics yeah. anyway. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. and, and what, one other... One other anecdote, um, Briggs and Stratton, which I mentioned earlier, a little larger than a, than a middle market case, but but it filed with the first day uh, for a sale. The bidder was the dip lender. The committee tried to slow the process down, um, looking at things like you know the, the dip terms, the bid the bid procedures, but more just in general, you know what, what's the rush? The company has more liquidity than the debtor thought it would have when it filed. Um, the court still approved the first day bid procedures and the dip because it didn't view there to be another viable alternative. And, you know, that, that, that's pretty analogous, I think, to what you see in a lot of these cases. Yeah. And the, the you know, the one thing that the judges are, are, and committees and debtors are pushing back on, on these terms is uh, the, um, Aside from the the expense of the facilities, uh, the lenders often try to get new collateral, liens on collateral that was not part of the pre-petition uh, collateral, uh, and liens on uh, subchapter five causes of action, um, and those those are areas where uh, the the courts and the other parties in interest are trimming around the edges uh, of these facilities, but. It doesn't change the 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 main event, right? The the tremendous expense of these facilities and the pressure to get out of Chapter Eleven either through a sale or a confirmed plan, uh, and it, to to reduce the 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 cost of running the case. Chris, are we seeing mega case creep here? I think we are a little bit, but uh, in, in in two ways. One, one I talked about already, which is given the current market. Um, and how slow it is. Uh, you're seeing a lot of the players that, that typically work the mega cases in the middle market. Uh, the other thing I think you see, though, is, um, you know, good analogy. You don't see a lot of rights offerings and backstops, certainly in the middle market. You see them in the mega cases. But in the, the, the way those are priced, and, and I mentioned this a little earlier, um, folks look at what had been done previously as, comps, be it backstop fees and the like. And I think in, uh, in middle market cases, you're seeing that sort of mega case creep here as well, where uh, folks tend to look at, you know, comps on, on pricing and what's been, what's been done in this jurisdiction or other jurisdictions. And in the middle market, I, you know, I think different from the mega cases that I've mentioned, you really have to go further down, if you will, to, to get into facts and circumstances uh, on what's driving, you know, this particular case's pricing milestones. And the like, uh, you know, and certainly mega case debtors are, are more able to bear the cost of a complex and expensive case than, than, than the middle market. There's a, a bullet here, and we a bunch of us were in this case. This, this is on, on Lyondale. That was actually a 2009 case where that dip, if I remember right, topped 15%. Uh, and this is, you know, another example where in that case you had the judge looking at this, basically saying, you know, do you want to dip or not? Um, and that's certainly a, sort of a prevailing view that you see fill in the blank on, on the jurisdictions, you know, where the courts don't want to stop the music uh, on a case, particularly if the debtor has put on a, a good case in terms of, look, this is the only game in town in terms of the dip provider, and this is the best we can do. Sometimes the debtor will leave uh, certain terms for the committee to go attack. Um, I think you see that also more in mega cases that then in middle market. It happens in middle market occasionally, but the other issue you have in some of these middle market cases is you don't have uh, a committee because of lack of interest. Um, yeah, that, the hearing on that dip in Lyondell, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if you can say it started a lot of this stuff, but it certainly was one of the biggest examples from that period of time post 2008. And, um, you know, the place was, the courtroom was packed. I was there, I was sitting on that committee uh, and everybody filed objections to some of the terms of the of the facility, uh, including the committee. And you know, uh, 
there were a lot of objectors and the judges, as Chris said, basically said, you know, you want this or not, because if you don't get it, uh, this, this, this case doesn't stand a chance. And it was, it just was a, as you all probably know, it's just a huge company, um, with operations all over the world. So, uh, ultimately the case worked out reasonably well for unsecureds, uh, after years of litigation and litigation recoveries. Yeah. yeah we're, we're talking pricing trends, Rick. I know you've got some stuff that, that we've looked at to compare and grass pricing and other terms of the middle market versus the mega cases. Why don't we go to that? Okay. Yeah, there's a lot of great takeaways um, uh, for, the, for the, the panel I want to comment on. Uh, but first, let's just set the table by by going through our quantitative analysis. So, you know, what, what our goal here was, let's take a look at, you know, dip pricing metrics over the last, say, two years. And then, you know, before that, look at differences. But, you know, we decided to cut this in uh, March of 2020, which is when um, uh, when COVID kind of impacted everything. And so the top part of this chart um, is the two years prior to the pandemic. And then the bottom, you see the same metrics um, for the 18 months since the pandemic. So, you know, focusing on uh, on rollups, if, if you look at the ratios, right, there, there was some uptick. Um, you know, we try to uh, focus on the median. Um, there's the big 34 to one, uh, which is the highest one that we talked about, but there are a number of high ones. And, and normally that's when there's there's no other interest in the assets and no other uh, no other offers, but there are many that are that are in the teens. Um, but so you, you see that rollups, you know, really ticked up a little bit post pandemic from one to one, uh, from uh, one to one to 1.2 to one. Now they are down the last six months this is in the recent reorg report. Um, to about 1.1, right? So a lot of that is, you know, kind of hysteria of the mass amount of filings that, you know, happened in the first six months after filing, after uh, COVID, uh, the, you know, the retail and, and many of the other um, big ones. So, you know, one thing we want to look at was pricing, right? So if you, if you look at the median, you're at L750, L plus 750, and, 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 and so rates have gone up about, about 50 basis points based on L, um, you know, uh, based on uh, prime and fixed rates are about the same. Now, just note that all, all these dips, um, you know, and there's over 200 um, in the, in the um, uh, pre-pandemic analysis, 64 of those had roll-ups and many of these just based on L, some just based on a, a fixed rate. They don't have, they don't all have all of these rates. So these are just the ones that, that have those rates. And so, um, you know, when you look at uh, the pricing creep up based on L, which is, you know, a, a lot of times the best alternative for a, for a borrower, um, you, you have to also be thoughtful about, you know, where LIBOR has gone, right? So LIBOR, you know, in January of 2020, it was 1.7. Um, and, you know, so now, you know, 30-day LIBOR, you know, is, is less than, you know, 25 basis points, right? So it's gone down, you know, significantly, uh, you know, more than a percent. Um, which would would give some savings to to debtors, but um, note that a lot of these deals, both uh, pre-pandemic and post, uh, have a LIBOR floor built in. So you know you don't get to a borrower wouldn't take advantage of uh, low LIBOR if they still have uh, a one percent floor pre-pandemic. Of course, it, it was higher than that, um, and it was you know back in earlier cycle, um, you know when we first started seeing LIBOR. Um, floors be put in and probably the 11, 12, 13 um, um, period when, um, when, when LIBOR um, dropped at that point as well. Um, it's not on here, but um, we also looked at tenure, right? Because we've talked a lot about milestones. Um, so what we have seen is about a 10% decrease for middle market in terms of, um, of course, of a, a, you know, a dip tenure. Right, which often coincides with uh, with milestones. So, you know, it was about six and a half months. Now it's down to a little, you know, under six months. So um, they've tightened up about six percent, and that makes sense to us based on what um, what we're seeing in, in the market. Um, and uh, you know, you look at uh, you know some of the low, you know, a lot of facts and circumstances here. You know, you look at the low cases. You know, it usually just means you know there wasn't a lot of um, of debt in their um, pre-petition um, in terms of, you know, what they, they rolled up. You know, another thing that they do, uh, and Dale made the point in the earlier slide about stuff that's uh, in dip agreements and they try to grab extra collateral and, you know, avoidance actions. I, I think a dip lender knows that there's, you know, once a committee seated, 
you know, they're, they're going to have to give some things up. Another thing I try to do is, you know, charge the um, charge a higher interest rate, put in a much higher um, coupon rate and, and charge that on the rolled up piece too. And a lot of times they do get that. Um, but, but a lot of times you know, when the, when the um, new money portion is, is much smaller, um, they only get it based on, you know, based on what the new money is. It all depends on a negotiation with the committee. I, I think so, a lot of these lenders ask for liens on uh, the avoidance actions just so they have something they can give up in the negotiation. Yeah. Uh, because it's, 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 it's relatively uh, insignificant. It's expensive to prosecute the causes of action. It doesn't happen until much later in the cases. I think it's more of a negotiating point for a lot of these people than something they really want, which is why they're willing to give it up easily. So, so two other comments to, to add on to Rick's observations on just the general trends in the, the pricing analysis from that slide. Uh, one, not surprisingly, in the COVID environment, milestones were shorter, uh, in particular because, no shock, uh, folks didn't really have a, a view on, on the end game and how long it would take to get to resolution. You know, Hertz, if you look at that case, which ended up with a billion dollars recovery of the equity, uh, when it filed, bonds are trading in the teens. Uh, they, 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 they ticked up. We were watching TSA activity. And then you had the second wave over the summer. So it was like a roller coaster. Same thing in the middle market. So, so the tenor being tighter isn't a surprise. But how does that affect pricing? It affects pricing because a lot of the dip structures, not you know, of course, have commitment fees. Some of them have exit fees. And when you look at the rate of return to the dip lender on an annualized basis, including those fees, the, the, the shorter tenor on those dips creates a higher ROI. Uh, and then the other thing is the, you know, the hidden costs to the extent that you have, uh, Rick mentioned this, a dip with a, a LIBOR floor these days, uh, with LIBOR being, I don't know, 20 bips, give or take. Um, you know, there's a hidden cost there as, as well. Also, you know, given the, given these encroaching costs, right, these are going to have a significant effect on duck recoveries and which, uh, which we are going to talk about, I think in the next slide. Yeah. Maybe we can flip over to that, David, because we're getting, yeah. it's, a, it's a 1145. Yep. Um, yeah, so uh, look, none of this bodes well for, for trade creditors uh, in these middle market cases. Um, the, in, in the big cases, the mega cases, the Brazos uh, and Hertz of the world, um, and as Chris just mentioned, a, a big part of the unsecured debt is the pre-petition uh, cap structure, bondholders and note holders. Uh, and by the time you get to a chapter 11, um, and we saw this in Molycorp uh, in particular, the, uh, those holders are not legacy holders. They're people that have bought at a discount as the, and, and, and in a lot of cases at a tremendous discount as the company's uh, fortunes deteriorated. Um, and they're looking, for, um, they're looking for plan consideration in the form of stock in Nuco, or other tradable plan consideration because that's the business that they're in. The, the general unsecured trade creditors uh, and, and in, the, in the middle market cases tend to be much more trade debt uh, that, that are looking for uh, pure cash recovery. They, they don't wanna hold stock in Nuco and have to open a, uh, a, uh, a brokerage account to receive stock over time, although I've done that for clients. Uh, in some of these cases, um, the um, so none of this none of this is good for trade for the trade because it means that there's uh, because of the expense of the dips uh, and the fees that are associated with it. It means that the, even if the company reorganizes, there's not a lot of cash, if any cash, left over, and you end up in a lot of the cases uh, in the committee negotiating what amounts to a, a carve out at the end of the day just to get consent to a plan. Uh, which means a few cents on the dollar for unsecured creditors. Well, all, all that's true. So, you know, I think a lot of times it, it does get back to um, agree 100% none of this is, is, is on its face good, but a lot of times it comes down to the value of the trade. Um, so there was a case that Chris and I were involved in recently. It was a Speedcast case. You know, Speedcast um, was a company that didn't own satellites, but they had a technology 
and they they served about half the cruise ships in the world, right? Getting your um, you know connectivity for the navigation as well as for um, for the customers to have um, connectivity, right? So initially in that case, you know, we were an out of the money creditor group. We we're telling our committee that you know we're probably looking at less you know than a nickel in this case under ordinary circumstances. But um, there was another um, uh, equity sponsored party that uh, got interested. The value of the assets went up significantly. And, uh, you know, the trade in many cases um, was pretty valuable. So you're talking about some of the remote areas of the world where there may be only one, you know, China telecom um, provider um, that, uh, you know, you can reach cruise ships in uh, the middle of the Pacific and things like that. So, um, you know, a, a lot of times that's what it's going to come down to is the value of the assets and then the value of the trade, how exclusive is the trade, um, right. you know, in terms of these creditors. You know, if it's the yeah, same. In those cases, you have the the happy uh, circumstance for some of the the general unsecured creditors, where the product or service that they provide under their their contract is unique. Uh, there's not an easily uh, or they're not easily replaceable with a lower cost um, uh, vendor. And those those creditors can, may have their contracts assumed, uh, in which case they get paid a cure. One trend we've seen over the past ten years is debtors negotiating with, uh, with uh, vendors whose contracts are being assumed for a reduced cure amount. They'll come to the vendor and say, look, well, we want to assume your contract, but we can't pay the entire pre-petition uh, portion as a cure amount, but we'll pay you 70%. And you know, my advice to clients in that circumstance is, you know, take what you can get. You keep your contract in place, you keep making money from the, your relationship with this debtor, and you're getting paid a lot more than you're going to get paid uh, just on the proof of claim. The other, the, the last point that we added last night to this was, right. you know, to add insult to injury in these cases, the, uh, you know, on top of the prospect of receiving a few cents on the dollar on your on your pre-petition proof of claim, trade creditors at the end of the day often get sued for a preference, and you know, a lot of times. Uh, Michael or our other corporate partners will call me up and say, I just got a call from a client who filed a proof of claim in this case a couple of years ago, and they just got served with this complaint. And, you know, in the middle, in, in bigger cases with bigger creditors, they, their in-house counsel tend to understand that that's uh, in prospect in these cases, but smaller, smaller cases with smaller creditors, uh, you know, that may have an in-house counsel, but they really have never, if they've never been sued for a preference before they get this and they, you know, the reaction is, wait a minute, I've lost $500,000 on this deal. And now I'm getting sued for the two payments that I got uh, before the case was filed. So, you know, it's a, it's not a happy conversation to have with those folks. So, so that gets back to in middle market in particular facts and circumstances based, because if you have trade credit where, um, they're critical to a reorganization or to the new owner in a, in a sale. Uh, the risk of getting hit with an avoidance action certainly goes goes way down. So sometimes, you know, Speedcast is a good example uh, in, in the credit rights side of things. It's, uh, you know, it's a fact and circumstances case where, where you're dealt a, you know, pretty good deck of cards. Uh, and, you know, that that's, that's really how trade fares in these cases. It's really facts and circumstances based on how critical they're going to be on to the end game. Yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, on preference claims. over budget. <laughs> yeah, the good news on preference claims is you can settle them reasonably. Uh, and people's clients still don't like writing a check, but they you're not you get the letter from the from the debtor or the the liquidating trust that says here's what you owe us. We'll take ninety five percent of it. But, you know, our experience is you can you work the defenses and you come up with uh, uh, a reasonable compromise. Um, and in some cases, as Chris mentioned, uh, the part of the plan negotiation process is that the the there aren't preference claims brought at the end of the day. And that's a way to get cooperation from the creditors committee. So I think, uh, David, that's about all we have on the slides. Uh, I don't know if yeah. you have any questions. No, th thanks a lot, Dale. Um, yeah, um, I, we're done with the slides and I'm sure we, we could, we could go on. There's always more to talk about, but I think we can get started on some Q and A. And I think our first question was about that, um, 
the, I don't want to say, almost egregious, right? 34 to one roll up. And I think that, I think that you, we, we taught, you guys touched on this, but like, why, you know, why would a court approve something like that? Um, you know, what, what's the justification for something well, like that? We talked about this last night after we had our call with you guys. Um, and, you know, under the facts of that case, there, there was not, uh, there were not any other secure creditors and the, the dip lender was the pre-petition lender uh, that had the first lien position anyway. And so in that case, while it looks pretty outrageous, frankly, just when you look at the numbers, the reality of the situation was nobody was harmed by it. And that creditor with or without the roll up uh, would have had the first lien on the assets anyway. Uh, it wasn't priming itself. And there may have been reasons to the you know, sort of structural reasons for putting everything into one facility. It's easier to administer. Uh, it, you know, makes the it makes the, the process more streamlined. And under those kind of types of circumstances, judges will approve that because it makes business sense uh, to do it that way. Uh, the and, and as we said, that that and the 16 to one in the in the post COVID period really are outliers in that in that realm. Um, and then I think the next question we have, which goes out to, uh, to everybody is what do you guys see, right? Um, coming up in the next 12 months or so it's, it's been a slow start so far. Well, uh, my crystal ball oftentimes is, uh, not great with these sort of things, but not surprisingly. And we talked about this, the velocity of cases is slowed. The size of cases is well down. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but on a panel uh, that I saw Jamie Spragan speak on uh, a while back, he commented in terms of the COVID period that there were two to three years worth of um, pipeline on, uh, on cases that was compressed into a six to a nine month period um, in 2020. Uh, the high yield market is still hot. Uh, the default rates are still low, um, but interest rates, uh, you know, when do they creep up? When do they see, when do we see inflation? As I mentioned, I think we will continue to see, and it's probably more in the middle market than the larger cases, uh, energy, particularly upstream, uh, you know, gas, gas related uh, and, uh, and healthcare uh, in the near term. And then, you know, I, I would think you know, if you ask a question like this, Memorial Day of 2022, you're going to get a different answer, at least for me anyway. I don't know if folks have other thoughts. Yeah, I, I think it's it's, it's really, uh, we've been hearing that it's the calm before the storm for a year and a half. Um, certainly the federal funding uh, during the COVID period has stayed, and the fact that interest rates have stayed as low as they have, have staved off a lot of filings. Um, the other Thing that we're seeing is that the traditional pre-petition lenders, the you know the, the commercial, the national and state commercial banks that have facilities that may be in default for a variety of reasons, are renegotiating. Uh, the, uh, the the phrase I've heard some FAs use is extend and pretend. Uh, but when in, banks are regulated entities. Uh, and the regulators have been holding off on forcing the banks to uh, foreclose on collateral, uh, but that can't last forever. Uh, and eventually the regulators are gonna put pressure on these lenders to start uh, exercising their remedies or, because the banks ultimately themselves have a liquidity problem. I think the other, the other dynamic is, which is the jury's still out, is the long range impact of the pandemic on uh, commercial real estate, and right. how that how that resonates into and everything else, be it be it uh, healthcare service businesses, um, your know, REITs and the like, that I think remains to be seen on where that where that lands. Well, I think that the the a trigger for for those cases is going to be when all these office space leases start coming up for renegotiation, and you know firms like ours and BRG, you know, are going to say. How, how much of these big office buildings do we really need these days? And that's really going to put pressure on those, those owners and particularly with the REITs, right? I mean, the, 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 the REIT capital structure is such that they've got a lot of, they need a lot of income streams. And if those buildings 
start to uh, not flow cash, they've got all kinds of issues. Yeah, it, it reminds me of 2013 a lot. Um, you know, super low interest rates, bond buying, um, and that's when we, you know, started seeing, uh, you know, uh, amend and extend and, and covenant light, right? And, um, you know, back in that period. So, and, you know, certainly, you know, the market rebounded, but that was, um, you know, that was, that was a pretty deep period right there of a, of a down market. Hey, Michael, have you seen any of our lender clients uh, extending uh, facilities that are arguably in default? Not so much. I think lenders have been a little bit more willing to work with their borrowers. Uh, but you know, I'm a little bit more of an optimist. I, talking to a lot of my clients uh, you know, on the, the business side, uh, non, the non-finance companies, they do have, as, as Chris said, there's a, a ton of work in the pipeline. And you know, the federal funding and the PPP loans help these companies weather the storm and, and those who didn't have an issue and are, are still around are gangbusters right now, right? They're, they're, they have a lag, so they may have hit a hiccup, you know, last year or last quarter, but uh, the, the future seems very, you know, promising for, for them right now. So. Well, there's certainly a demand, uh, you know, a pent up demand for goods and services in the pipeline due to the, due to the logistical issues we've seen over the past year and a half. Right. They have a number of projects were put on hold and now they're, they're back and uh, people can't service them fast enough. So, Well, that's, that's good news for, for you, but for people in the, in the yeah. restructuring world, that's a, that's not, that's a dark cloud. I think uh, I, I want to attribute this, I think to JP Morgan, but you know, one of the money center banks that puts out their, um, you know, restructuring update was over the summer. Uh, and, and one of the last things that, that, that one of the last comments was, you know, hope you guys are all working on your handicaps because that's uh, pretty much what you'll be doing this summer. So, and, and that proved to be prescient. Well, I played a couple of times, but my handicap did not get any better. Okay. I, I think that, I mean, that's our, that's our time for today. And that's all the questions that we have. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to thank all of you guys, our, our presenters, um, for joining today. Um, I'd also like to remind everyone that Reorg is a global provider of credit intelligence data analytics for law firms, investor and advisors. If you're already a subscriber, please send any further questions. If you have this and other topics to customer success at reorg.com. Um, there's gonna be a replay available with slides within 24 hours. Did someone have something? Dad. No. Thanks for having us. We're we're happy to have you. And uh, any other questions, um, you know, uh, our contact information. I'll be I'll be in the deck to get sent around and you know feel free to reach out to us. Absolutely. Thanks everybody. Yeah. Thanks everyone. Have a great day. Thank you again for listening to this Rear Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the rear.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Friday.